Howdy. Welcome to the Mays Mastercast. I'm Shannon Deer, the Assistant Dean for Graduate Programs. It's just me for today's show. I'm not joined by your amazing host, Ben Wiggins, but for an exciting reason. We're starting a series in partnership with the Mays Innovation Research Center. The Mays Innovation Research Center is dedicated to understanding the true nature of innovation and how it benefits society. The center brings in innovative and creative guests, many of whom are successful entrepreneurs. And at Mays Mastercast, we have the honor of interviewing them while they're on campus. The format for our episodes with the center are going to be a little different than our regular episodes. Ben and I aren't going to do an introduction and we aren't going to do top three takeaways at the end. We're just going to jump into the episode. So let's do that now. Today we have Ed Water on the show, who is an engineer, product developer, and entrepreneur with lots of great experiences. Hello, Eduardo. Hey, how's it going? Going well. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're glad to have you here today. We'll jump into our icebreaker question, which is, what is your favorite superpower? Man, my favorite superpower, I think uh, teleportation is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just being able to travel different places quickly and not have to worry about all the details would be great. Uh, I think that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. Is it the quickly part? or the lots of places part that's more appealing to I think to it's you. both, right? Yeah. I think it's, yeah. uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I enjoy flying enough, but I really enjoy being there more than yes. the getting there part. And if you could cut out the journey sometimes, that wouldn't be too bad. But Which is I, me. Yeah. I spend a lot of time traveling, and so, you know, sometimes the journey's fun too. So And and maybe not a lesson for all of life, but just right. the travel part of life. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, I, sure. think, uh, I think, you know, in, in certain situations, it can come in handy. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> Zero commute, that would be nice. It know, would be that. wonderful yeah. on a daily basis. Tell us a little bit about you and your journey over time. Yeah. So I grew up in Texas, uh, grew up in Arlington. I was uh, homeschooled all the way through from K through 12. So automatically makes me a weirdo. (laughs) But, uh, you know, from there, I learned that I was interested in math and science and decided to major in mechanical engineering. And I applied a bunch of places, got in uh, around Texas, got in here at Texas A&M, but made the mistake of going to Baylor, uh, at least maybe probably in the eyes of your listeners. We'll forgive you. Yeah. But uh, no, I loved Baylor. It was a great experience. I met my wife there, learned about entrepreneurship for the first time and I uh, got a really great fundamental understanding of what I needed to be successful as an engineer. From there, I went to graduate school at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, planning on doing a PhD, but discovered the idea of startups uh, and really fell in love with that and ended up dropping out after finishing my master's to focus on a company that I started with some friends. Did that company for a little while. We'll talk about it a little bit more later. And then moved to Boston, Massachusetts to work for another hardware company uh, that we'll, we'll also touch on. And now I've co-founded a new company. So just kind of jumping around, uh, still in Boston and uh, enjoying the the East Coast when it's warm That's and a little nice. bit less when it's cold. Yes, I, I imagine. What brought you here to Mays Business School today? Yeah, so I was invited to give a talk uh, to a group about uh, innovation was kind of the broad topic and had a chance to share a few of the lessons that I've learned from working in startups and kind of giving a perspective about what it's like to work in that field uh, outside of the, the Texas startup ecosystem, which I think is great and is growing, but there's a whole other world out there and it's helpful to kind of have the those perspectives too. So it was a it was a lot of fun. I got to talk to about forty undergrads and uh, you know really engage with them, and they had a lot of great questions. So I was very impressed with the the students here at AM. What do you think was the biggest takeaway from that presentation that people need to know? Yeah. So, you know, the the main point that I had was that, you know, my career has been spent in one very specific world, which is startup technology companies. And if you want to work in that space, 
you just need to go do it, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's easy to kind of justify taking other approaches to get into startups, right? You could go work for a big company, you could work at a nonprofit, you could do you know ac academia for a long time and then start a company. But if you want to work in that world, just go do it. Just go join a startup company, right? Get a job there. That's easier said than done by a lot. But um, you know, if you're, it's like if you want to get better at a sport, you don't just watch videos of people playing that sport. You have to go play mm -hmm. the sport, and uh, that's kind of the the main thing I was trying to impart on the students at the, the the talk today. I was telling some undergrad students that they should go take those kinds of risks or jump into those kinds of things when they're still on their parents' insurance, which yeah. apparently is 26. <laughs> I'm like, yep. after that, it just gets harder because right, for you sure. need insurance. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think this concept of risk is a big one for people right now. It's it's the number one thing. I mean, just even as I, as I talk to people who, you know, I'm trying to recruit to join the company that I just co-founded, it's a real concern that people have. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, it just depends on how you think about risk, right? I, I always try to tell people, look at, you know, your life and the skills that you have and the economy that exists right now and realize that there's really never been a time, better time to take that kind of risk, right? You can, if you're young and, you know, you're just coming out of college, especially, you can go take a job. And if you don't have a job in three months, and that's the most extreme situation I can think of, you can go get another job really quickly. I mean, people are hiring like crazy right now. And so, you know, there's, there's very little like long-term life risk for, for students coming out of school Absolutely. for them to not join a startup. And I think it's a great path to kind of see if you enjoy it. And if you do, you can take that track. And if you don't, nobody will ever fault you for not enjoying working in the startup because it's kind of a yeah, kind of a mess. Tough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the stakes get higher, right, as you own a home or have children right. or whatever it is. Yeah, so for sure. coming straight out of undergrad. So we're going to talk about all of your many in inventions that were economically viable. But before we do that, I want to know what was the first thing you invented or first product you developed even yeah, as a child? Right. So in my talk today, I was, I was talking to the students and I was saying that you know, I think of startups as being a place where you work on innovation, where you're kind of adding two things together to make a new product. And I think of invention rather as like creating something from scratch. And I'm not an inventor. Like mm -hmm. I don't make things from scratch. You know, I've got my name on a few patents and stuff like that. But that has more to do with the legal system in the United States than like creating something from nothing. And so... You know, I've always worked on projects that are about kind of extending things a little bit more based on bringing something else into them. And in many ways, the the stuff that I did for PlantLink, my first product, uh, was the first thing I really built that way. You know, most of the things I'd worked on had been class projects or research for my graduate degree, building things like that, or, um, you know, kind of like going through tutorials and learning things. I wasn't... Uh, kind of a classic like builder entrepreneur kid when I was growing up. I was more interested in playing video games and hanging out with friends. But uh, I think that shows that you can come into this stuff a little bit later and still be successful. I think that's a really good lesson. I was listening to a podcast this morning, actually, and it was of a, a writer was talking and he was talking about how every writer he knows like wrote as a kid and loved to write. And he came into it later in life. And he was like, it's fine. You know, if, if you feel like you have something to write, something to say at this point, do it. And I yeah. think that's a good lesson for people. You know, I think people kind of think I'm so far along and I've never yeah. innovated or invented something right. really meaningful. It doesn't mean you can't now. Right? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I mean, I think there's, uh, 
there's a real fetishization of youth in the startup community mm-hmm. and this idea that you have to be, look like Mark Zuckerberg and drop out, of, drop out of Harvard at 19 to start a billion dollar company. And that's really not true. I mean, I think the data shows that most truly successful entrepreneurs are starting those companies in their late 30s or early 40s, right? Because it actually does take some time to know enough about what's going on in the world to be able to start something valuable, right? But that's not the people that they make movies about and write books about and blog about. Sure. Um, so I think the most common profile for a successful founder is like former VP of something mm-hmm. at a more established company uh, with some startup experience going in and, and starting their own business because they see a hole in that market. And so I think you know becoming an expert is more important than uh, just randomly building things when you're you know twelve. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. So. You mentioned PlantLink, which was a product that you developed as a graduate student and then sold to Miracle Grow, right. which is a huge accomplishment. Tell us more about that product and the development process. Yeah, so that product was born out of, you know, kind of a confluence of my own problems growing plants and killing my basil a lot uh, and you know having I kill to buy new plants. Often. That's that's a challenge. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's a big it. one to pull off. Um, yeah. So, you know, my wife and I were trying to grow a plant and we weren't successful. And so we, I was like, oh yeah, this is probably a problem that's been solved before. I'll go buy something. And I bought it and it was just this little meter with like an analog dial that would go back and forth. And that really didn't get me excited. Right. I wanted, if I remembered to check that, I would remember to check the plant and then I would just water it. And so I decided to connect it to this little electronics platform called Arduino, um, that I'd used in undergrad on some class projects. And, I connected that up to uh, this kind of cloud computing thing that I've been working with that could send messages to my phone. And then I would just check, you know, I'd get a, a ping whenever it was time to check it. And I'd look at it and I could tell if I needed to water that plant or not. And so that was really fun. It was kind of exciting to see that. And so that was really just to start of a, you know, it was just to start a project. And then I was involved with the kind of campus entrepreneur ecosystem at the University of Illinois that I think is probably very similar to what is here at A&M from what I've heard. Um, you know, just events for students to go to and learn more about what it's like to be exposed to startups. And so I'd go to those things and people would say, well, what startup are you working on? And I would say, well, I'm not working on a startup. I, I'm just a student, right? And I quickly was like, well, maybe I should like start a company just to have something to talk about. And so I was like, well, I've got this plant thing, so I guess I'll start a company. And that maybe sounds more like, oh, you know, bumbling kind of into it than it was, but at the same time, I never had any kind of idea that that was going to become a billion dollar company, you know, at the mm-hmm. time. And it never did. But yeah, you know, I just ended up kind of like taking every step that was in front of me. I would do the best with the information I had and push forward. And that got to the point that, you know, the company grew. We ended up launching a Kickstarter campaign that was successful. You know, we shipped product to customers and that was enough to get the notice of Scott's Miracle Grow, who ended up purchasing the company eventually. Amazing. Tell me more about the Kickstarter process. How did that work? How was it successful? I mean, there's millions of Kickstarter projects out there. What do you think made yours successful and what was that process like? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's funny because I'm, I think I'm overall pretty skeptical of most Kickstarter campaigns about whether they'll work or not. But if you look at my career, I've actually worked at two of the three companies I've worked at were both Kickstarter companies. So uh, PlantLink was a Kickstarter and then Formlabs, uh, the the company I worked at later, was started as a Kickstarter campaign. Mm -hmm. And so I think there are a lot of ways that you can use that platform to get information about the demand for the product that you're developing. And you can kind of confirm that to yourself and to employees and to investors and other people. But you certainly don't have to, right? The company I'm working on now is 
definitely not a Kickstarter company and has no plans to do anything like that. So, you know, for us at PlantLink, we we picked a number out of a hat about how much money we thought we needed to raise on Kickstarter. And we did some math and thought that was good and we would, wouldn't end up losing money by raising that much money. And it turned out to be wrong. And, you know, thankfully we'd raised some investor money. So we survived it. But yeah, it was mostly just a lot of mistakes that were made, right? And I think my rule of thumb now, if I'm thinking about putting money into a Kickstarter as a consumer or an investor or whatever they call people now, the you know the backers, I, it needs to have more than $3 million going into it for me to say, I think this is enough money for somebody to pull off a product. And we did 100000 or like 98000 or something. So we were a 30th of what we really needed to be a yeah. successful company. And if you kind of look at the ultimate path of PlantLink, we kind of just barely several times survived. And then if Scott's Miracle Grow had not acquired that company, then that product would have ceased to exist. And my Kickstarter project would have no longer you know, worked if I had been a user, right? And so I think you, know, you just kind of have to think about if you're buying any of these internet connected devices, are they going to last a long time? Anyway, I'm kind of rambling at this point. So. No, that's great. I mean, even the the three million statement is so interesting. So just to clarify that, if you're looking at a Kickstarter project, you want to see something that's raised three million. Yeah. Before you're really excited about it. Yeah. At this point in time, you know, that's that was 2011, 2012 when mm-hmm. we did our Kickstarter, and probably the number back then would have been half a million dollars or something okay. like that. But but now with the amount of resources that are poured into that platform, and this is very specifically about like consumer electronic technology projects, right? Like I've funded random art projects and like, you know, kits and there's like a giant array of things on Kickstarter that don't need $3 million and should never try to do that, right? It would like wreck that person's life if they got that much money to like back some project, right? Yeah. But if I'm trying to buy something, basically trying to buy something on Kickstarter, right? That I would eventually buy at a Best Buy. It needs to have sort of that like, you know, seven figure kind of dollar amount going on for the campaign for me to think that they're going to have enough resources to really pull this off. And it sounds like that's in part the resources that they have to pull it off, but also the demand for that product. What's the interest in that product? Yeah, I think it touches on both of those, right? I think they need a certain amount of money to really break out. Um, You know, you can actually look at a company that checked that box and didn't end up working out exactly the same way. There's this cooler, right? The coolest cooler was this like big Kickstarter project that got a lot of buzz. And I think they did something like 10 million. I mean, it was like a ton of money, right? But like they couldn't ship those coolers to save their lives because they just had many engineering and tooling problems and there were lots of issues. I don't know where they ended up landing and maybe I'm spreading rumors now, but I think that was what happened. Yeah. And you know, so the money by itself isn't enough, right? You need the demand, you need the resources to meet the demand, and you need the right team of people. And so, yeah, I think Kickstarter has its merits, but it's certainly not where I'm focusing my entrepreneurial talents anymore. But it got you started. Yeah, no complaints. Yeah. So what advice do you have for other product developers considering to sell their product? That seems like a I know a lot of people, it's the product is their baby, and it doesn't sound like it necessarily was quite that for you. It was it was a product that right. you were excited about getting out there, but some people really feel so much ownership and possession around that. And what, what advice do you have or what thoughts around that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I touched on this a little bit with the students today. I was talking to them about how kind of my like zeroth rule of working in, in startups and in, in innovation is just like a really firm connection to reality. Right. And so you have to be able to 
piece apart these different things, right? That you talked about, right? There's your passion, there's your ego, there's your life goals, there's, you know, your hopes and dreams and all these things. And then there's what's going on today right now in front of me, right? And I think that if you're in a position where you do have that passion and this is your baby and this is the thing you care about more than anything else in the world and you have the ability to continue working on that, maybe it's not a good idea to sell that to a larger organization. There's a decent chance they'll end up shutting it down in five years or something, right? Maybe they only care about buying it so there's no competition anymore. There's a lot of reasons mm-hmm. that people go through these acquisitions. And so if you have that you know, that passion, that drive, maybe don't do it, right? And Mark Zuckerberg was famously quoted. There was an offer to purchase Facebook for, I think it was like a billion dollars a long time ago. And the board brought it up and he said, well, there's nothing to talk about here. So why? And they said, well, wait, what, what are you talking about? We got to at least talk about it. And he said, well, right now I like having a social network. And if somebody paid me a billion dollars for this one, I would just go start another social network. And I kind of like the one I already have. So why, you know, why would I change that? Yeah. Right. But Mark Zuckerberg was in a position where he had the money and the resources and the traction and everything else to continue doing that. Right. Most people, if they were offered a billion dollars, that would totally change their ability to work on the thing that they cared about, right? And so I think you have to understand, right? Are you, is your desire to continue working on this thing and not you know, sell out per se, is that based in reality or is that based on your ego and your passions? And I think it's just important to ask that question. You know, For us, we were at the point where we were going to have to shut the company down if we didn't get acquired. Mm-hmm. And so it was a very easy decision to make, sure. right? But yeah, I, you know, I haven't been in a position to sell a company and, you know, sell something for tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars and make that decision. What was, you talked about there being some mistakes that were made along the way. What was the most surprising mistake for you or unanticipated mistake? I think every mistake has been equally surprising in the sense that I have always made decisions to the best of my ability with the information that I have. And just like most other startup companies, you know, our downfall was not because our customers were terrible or we didn't get enough money from our investors or any of the other things we could point to. It was just our own kind of like bumbling incompetence, right? And that's the world. Like the world is full of people that don't know what they're doing, doing the best they can with what they've got in front of them. And sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't. And I think that having the the ability to say like, I'm just going to do the best I can with what I have in front of me. And if it's a mistake, I'm going to learn from it and not do that twice. Um, I think that's all most people can do, right? I definitely have known entrepreneurs that have been significantly more successful than me. And if you talk to them about it, they're doing the exact same algorithm that I'm running, right? They're just doing whatever they can with what's in front of them. And some of it's luck and some of it's uh, skill. And, you know, there's a a bunch of different things that play into that. But uh, I don't think that you know, most people are going to go into it and make a really, really big mistake and then just continue acting that way. So, so to me, none of it's surprising, right? When it goes poorly, I'm just like, yeah, that's how life goes. Uh Like it's most, most of these things don't work out. Most startups are not successful. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know that any of this is the, the failures or the, the mistakes have surprised me. More recently, you led the engineering and product development on the Fuse One for Form Labs as an unsophisticated observer, I did a little research on Fuse One and it sounds like it's, if I'm boiling it down to the second grade version, maybe a 3D printer that uses nylon rather than the traditional plastics. You got it. Excellent. And our engineers listening may want a more sophisticated explanation of Fuse One. So can you talk a little bit about that 
product, what it does, and even your experiences with Formlabs. Yeah. So the Fuse One, like you said, it's a it's a selective laser centering 3D printer. Yeah, that was the part I didn't know what any of that meant, but yeah, it sounds so, cool. So it's pretty simple, right? Um, if you've ever worked with like pottery or glazing something, right? When uh, you do some of that, you end up having these particles that stick together when you heat everything up, right? And that's centering. That's all that is. And so if you are Centering, you can center ceramics and metals and plastics, and you're really just causing particles to fuse together at a spot. You're not melting everything together. These just spheres are touching and then sticking, right? And so that's the centering part. And the selective laser part is just pointing a laser at these particles and choosing where in the bed of particles to make them stick together, right? And so what that looks like in practice is you have this fine powder that's sort of like talcum powder or maybe like very fine sand that you spread out in an even layer and then you heat everything up to just below the melting temperature for that nylon plastic like you said and then you shine a laser and you draw a pattern on that and everywhere the laser hits the particles they stick together and wherever you don't shine the laser nothing happens right and then you drop down you apply another layer of material and then you repeat that process over and over again and at the end you have all these particles that have stuck together to make this three-dimensional shape and they're supported by all the particles that didn't stick together and so you just brush that off and then you have your object and it's really cool. I mean, it's the most futuristic thing I've ever been involved with. But this technology has existed since the 80s. I mean, it was invented at the very beginning of the 3D printing movement. And it's just super expensive. Like right now, if you want to buy a selective laser centering 3D printer, it's probably going to cost you like $150,000 to $250,000. And we wanted to build one for $10,000. And so it was just a massive reduction in cost. And that was just about stripping all the Net, all the unnecessary things away from the product and building just the most lean and mean version of that uh, system that we could even imagine. And I saw that it is on the market for $10,000. So you were successful in that process? Or? Yeah, I think overall, right. So we launched that product in 2017 at a big event that Formlabs had. And uh, they have another version of that event coming up this year. And we, you know, got it to the point where we proved that it was possible. We showed the the product. We had, you know, parts that were real. We had a lot of people that started, you know, pre-ordering that product. But as an organization, Formlabs, you know, was was struggling to figure out, and I was part of this, like, how do we prioritize different product lines internally as we're developing, you know, we have this one amazing product, the Form 2, that I wasn't involved in developing, and it was going on kind of in parallel the best professional 3D printer ever made. It made the company worth a billion dollars. It's a huge thing. How do you think about supporting and developing future versions of that? And then also having this new product that while it does have some really good traction, it's not a, you know, it's not a billion dollar business right mm -hmm. by itself. And so just balancing those different things and developing new products is a challenge as any organization grows. And we got to the point where it was like ready to go into manufacturing, but you know, different priorities were happening. And for me, it was a good idea to kind of go back to early stage companies. That's what I wanted to do next. And I decided to leave. So the, the product has not fully shipped yet, okay. but it is, I think it's very close. And cool. I think uh, you'll if you follow Form Labs, you'll see some announcements soon, I hope, to that direction. Yeah. I know, or I don't know, but I have a little bit of exposure to a company that was in the 3D printing space. And it seems like one of the faults of 3D printers is that layering that you mentioned. It can mm. make products not as stable or yeah. strong. Sure. The products that the Fuse One develops seemed like, and, and just from looking on the website, it looked like headphones and sure. things that didn't look 
like what other things I've seen printed on a 3D printer. Yeah. How do you get past that issue with the Fuse One? Yeah. So the the like inner layer adhesion, like mechanical weakness problem that you're talking about is uh, it's a real issue. And depending on the the like fundamental chemistry and thermodynamics and physics that are going on, you either will or won't have that problem, right? And there are ways with some of the thermal processes like selective laser centering or uh, fused deposition modeling, FDM printing, they just inherently are going to have these isotropic issues. But that doesn't really cause a problem because as any engineer is designing something, they need to know the limitations of their process. And even if you can make that number as good as, you know, the out of plane strength, that might not be enough for someone designing a part, right? So it's all things being equal, definitely better for that to not be there. But it it hasn't stopped people from adopting 3D printing for 30 years and making it a multi-billion dollar industry, right? Yeah. And then there's others that are more of a chemical process, like the stereolithography process that the Form 2 uses. And that's, you know, it doesn't have that problem. It, okay. Everything's chemically bonded all the way through. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, it becomes, I think one of these things where you're never really sure if it's a marketing thing or if it's like a real problem for engineers to solve. Yeah. And it's an easy one to kind of put some effort into and then talk about as a big deal. But when I talk to customers and I ask them, what's the thing you're missing in 3D printing? That was never the thing they brought up. It doesn't mean it's not worth working on or not a great idea, but it wasn't in the top five of the issues I saw. And there's a lot of products that can be developed that don't need to exactly be right. as strong. Yeah. And you don't want it to just fall apart when you touch it in right. one axis, right? Nobody wants that. But if you're 10% weaker, but it's enough to get you there, mm-hmm. it, it's fine. It's just about the absolute numbers, not about the relative numbers. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. So at Form Labs, you grew your team from two to 30 in a very short period of time. And we know not all entrepreneurs are great managers, but you obviously had to implement some management skills in that growth process. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs and creators about managing teams like that? Yeah, management is uh, its a really hard problem. And I, I don't know that the skill sets are going to naturally overlap with one another. Some of the best entrepreneurs I've ever met are really, really bad managers. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the best managers I've ever met would never be good as entrepreneurs. And I, you know, I have yet to be a, a breakout success as an entrepreneur, so I certainly can't claim that I'm great at that. But I do think I'm decent as a manager. And you know, I don't have some sort of list of principles to make somebody a good manager, but I kind of just try to apply the the golden rule, right? Of like doing to other people what I'd want them to do to me, right? When I have a manager and I interact with them and they do something that bothers me, I think I don't want to do that to other people, Mm -hmm. right? I'm conscious of the fact that like when my wife comes home from work and, you know, we talk about the stuff we've been doing, we talk about the problems or the, you know, the good and the bad of like the people that are managing us that are in charge, right? And so I know that an interaction I have that might be two minutes long with somebody could end up being the thing that they talk about with their significant other for three hours that night. Right. I can't walk on eggshells with all the things I'm saying, but I have to know that like that can happen. And I think if you, the ability to totally dismiss that sometimes can make you a better entrepreneur because you're not worried about all these small things. You're just focused. Right. But at the same time, you've got to build a team that like really loves working together. And I think some like being good at management stuff, makes that a lot easier to do. Have you ever seen the HBO show Silicon Valley? Yeah, I have. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, when you were talking about entrepreneurs making bad managers, I just think of all the terrible management in that movie. Sure. And then also the bringing in the entrepreneurs in all seriousness, bringing in other people to manage that are 
more rules, rule followers and things like that. Cause if you're an entrepreneur, you're thinking outside the box and you need someone to come in and tell you how to do your taxes. And yeah, yeah, those aren't the fun things of owning a business. For sure. Yeah, no, I think it takes all types to be successful in this world. And it's really about finding your own, you know, personal niche where you're the best at the thing you're doing, right? You want to be trying to be better at the things that you're passionate about and good at. And I think that comes back to my statement earlier about, you know, what is reality, right? Maybe I want to be a founder and CEO of a company, but maybe this isn't the right time for me to be doing that, right? And I should be focusing on, you know, the things that I'm really good at and adding a lot of value there and learning more things to become that in the future, right? So there's there's all kinds of ways to go about doing this sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. What are you working on now? Or as much of, of that as you can tell us. <laughs> Yeah. So I recently joined uh, a company as co-founder. I was approached by another entrepreneur in Boston who had raised some, some seed funding and, uh, you know, wanted to work on an autonomous transportation company. And so, you know, we're, we're taking a very different approach to that space than, than a lot of other companies. I can't say very much about it right now. We're only a couple months in and we're trying to keep kind of a low profile as we build out the first version of our technology. But I'm really excited about moving into a new space where it's different problems than I've worked on before. I'm working with new kinds of people, different customers. Uh, it's just an exciting opportunity to learn about something that I think is going to be a big part of the future. And, you know, whether it's autonomous you know, transportation or production systems or even things in, you know, the financial and accounting world that are becoming automated. I think that that really is kind of the next wave of technology is finding ways to remove the need for human interaction. Pros and cons of that for society and policy and government and everything sure. aside, it is the direction technology is moving. And so being more exposed to that and learning about it is a really exciting challenge for now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And doesn't mean that people aren't important. Right. It just means the of way course. we're using people is going to be shifting. Yeah. And that's important. For sure. It's a it's a really challenging and interesting topic that could probably be its own separate podcast. I think it yeah. could. I think it, it probably could. is, actually. <laughs> I'm really interested in unconscious thought and how important that is to how we process information and what our minds are doing when we're not focused on the problem at hand. And that it that our brain continues to think and continues to problem solve when we're on a walk or taking a nap or whatever it is that we're stepping away from that problem. What are some ways that you step away? Do you have any hacks with that that you like to things you like to go to that get you away from the situation and help you think better? I am genuinely terrible at this. Are you? Um, yeah, I'm like world class bad at uh, turning my brain off and getting away from things. I've, uh, you know, I've talked to people about this before and, you know, I've said my go-to move is just to distract myself, right? I have a real problem with just laying in bed awake at night thinking about work problems. And the thing I do is go and sit on the couch and like watch Netflix mm -hmm. and just like fall asleep by not thinking about the problem, right? Yeah. That's not healthy. That's not good. I wouldn't recommend that anybody follows my lead on that. But, you know, I mean, the times that I found myself really feeling the best are when I'm outside, when I'm connecting to nature in some way. So my wife and I got into hiking a couple of years ago and, you know, getting a chance to do that is a big part of, I think, how I distress. And whenever I, when I left my last job, uh, I took some time off and traveled up and on the West Coast in a convertible, which was amazing. Mm. And, uh, you know, I was outside as much as I could be. And I think 
you know, for me, that's, that's probably the number one way to rejuvenate. I don't have any super extreme hobbies, but just being outside and not being, you know, connected to all this technology, I think is a good way to kind of reset that and think about the stuff you really care about in life. I guess it's funny that I end up coming back and sitting in an office all the time in, you know, the Boston winters, but you know, maybe you got to go up and down sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's the reality that you probably need to work. So yeah. <laughs> being in an office is part of that sometimes, but it's true. I try to get outside I haven't been as good lately because the weather hasn't been as good, but now that it's getting better, I try to get outside for an hour a day and just sit out and work for, I mean, mm. even during the work day, that just awesome. sit outside. Yeah. It's important, right? Yeah. I mean, for, for someone who needs to be outside to be happy, yeah. it's important that you fulfill that. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, I wish that I could do that in Boston. It's right. like, <laughs> right. if I can be outside for as few minutes as possible during the day in the winter, it's my goal, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think on a normal winter commute day, I'm outside for a grand total of like 20 minutes and it's, you know, 20 degrees and, you know, yeah. it's crazy. So And those months, I, I feel emotionally different in those months yeah. that, I mean, yeah. what do they call it? The winter... The winter, winter blues, blues or, or something. something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Those are real. Yeah. yeah. Seasonal affective disorder is, is definitely a thing. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I don't know. We always joke in Boston that like the idea that you like come up with ideas in the summer and then go and just like hide away and work on them in the winter is like the Boston way of doing things, but they're pretty happy in Silicon Valley and their weather's a lot better. That's so true. You know, I, I all year know round. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if it's totally a valid comparison. <laughs> That's to make. Yeah. very true. Yeah. If money was not an issue, what innovation would you pursue right now? Hmm. It could be, like you said, an art project. I mean, it doesn't just anything. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I think, you know, in terms of innovation, I'm really fortunate that I work in a world where I can pretty much work on whatever I want to in that, in that kind of sense. Right. I mean, I'm not a big believer in like self-funding companies because I think it's easy to dilute yourself into working on things that people don't really need or want. And so having customers and investors that are kind of driving that stuff is really important for that validation. And so money's not normally the thing that I use to decide what I want to work on professionally. Mm -hmm. Personally, I, you know, there are a lot of things that I love, whether it's travel or food or are doing, you know, I do a little bit of like programmatically defined art projects. So I'll like write code and it'll generate an image. And I love that. I spend That's a bunch cool. of time doing that in between gigs and that would be a lot of fun to work on. But can we show some of your art on our website? Nah, we'll see. We'll see. Come we'll on. talk about That's it. That's cool. You know, we we'll, can talk. We'll about negotiate. It. That's yeah. really awesome. No, it's a lot of fun. But, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, I'm really happiest whenever I'm working on these like hard problems that I think are going to make an impact in the world. And I don't have enough insight and I'm not smart enough to be able to do that in a totally self-guided way. I think I need that feedback from other people. And so in some ways I'm already doing the thing that I would do if money wasn't a problem. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think if I just took all my time and went and like lived on the beach and did art, I'd probably be happy for about four months and then I'd like want to get back into it. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm super lucky that that's not the way that I have to make my decisions right now. Yeah, know? that's a, we, we've talked about that on the show before. It's a uncommon and a wonderful place to be when your passions and what pays the bills intersect, right? Yeah. You can pay yeah. the bills with your passion. I feel immensely privileged to be in that position. And yeah. I know that that's not true for, for so many people. And I think if, you know, if I'd been born differently and been really passionate about being an actor, I mean, that is not a thing that aligns well for most people, right? No. Um, so I'm, I'm super fortunate that that's the case. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
What does your wife do? You mentioned her coming home from work. Yeah. So my wife and I met in linear algebra class Aww. at Baylor University. It's How the romantic. Most, most romantic of all <laughs> math topics. Yeah. So we met there and she was a mechanical engineering student as well. So we both graduated at the same time and she works for Bose Corporation, oh. the uh, sort of like speaker headphone company. That's cool. She works in their automotive division and works on uh, project management for, for that product line. So yeah, she's been there for about a year and it's been a really good experience to kind of continue seeing her kind of grow in, in this project management role has been really rewarding and a lot of fun. What are the most impactful ways you think you've grown over the last year? Hmm. You know, I think the last year, basically like right now, probably end of March to early April, that has been the hardest professional year of my entire life. Making that decision to leave Form Labs was really hard. You know, there was a lot of things I loved about the company, but I knew that what I wanted long term was to be a founding member of an entrepreneurial team again. And no matter what happens when you're part of a company and you're not that role, you can't be that role, right? You can have a rewarding and, you know, amazing career, but you're not that thing. And when that's what I wanted, I knew I had to depart, right? So it was hard to kind of kind of, you know, square that circle and make that decision. And once I made it, you know, I, I decided to leave and then I took some time off and the time off was really good. But then I was kind of wandering around and trying to figure out what exactly I wanted to work on. And that's a super hard problem. You know, there are a lot of interesting things in there out in the world that you can work on. And so I think, you know, the thing I've learned the most about myself is probably, I guess you could call it like self-imposed resilience, but just that, you know, I can kind of encounter something realize that the reality is not lining up with what I want, make a hard decision, and then get through a really long transition period and come out on the other side and feel pretty good about what I'm doing. And I think if that can be true for the rest of my life, I'd be pretty happy. I'd love to minimize the number of hard times to go through, but you know, you don't always get to pick when that stuff happens and being able to get through it is, uh, is super valuable. Absolutely. Well, let's move into rapid fire questions. Okay. So you can answer these as long or as short as you want, but we try to usually keep them kind of brief. Great. So what do you consider your most valuable failure? I think probably starting a company in graduate school that, uh, it's hard to say it's a failure since it was acquired, but right. it certainly, and I didn't fly here on a private jet, so it wasn't fully successful uh, in the scale of what it could have been. So yeah, but that kind of set me up for the career that I have now. And that was a great experience. What do you think is people's biggest misconception of you? Hmm. I think probably that I am really confident. I think that I'm both like very drawn to conflict. So I'm willing to engage in things that other people might not want to, you know, be in conflict about. And I'm also, I'm pretty decisive. I can make decisions pretty quickly. But that doesn't mean I'm confident in those decisions or that I'm confident that I'm right in a conflict, right? I think I'm just willing to in engage in those things that a lot of people aren't. And I think they think that that means that I'm super confident in my abilities. But really, I don't know what I'm doing any more than anybody else does. Uh, and so I think that comes across sometimes in a good way and sometimes in a bad way. And just finding the right way to balance that is important. It sounds like, though you are comfortable with saying that you don't, I mean, just from our brief conversation, it sounds like you're comfortable with saying that you don't know what you're doing and that you don't view that as a problem, that it's, and, and it's not that you're trying to pretend to know what you're doing. It's that you're okay with admitting, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. N none of you do either. Right. And let's figure out how to do this yeah, together. Exactly. Yeah. I think that that's the only way to make progress. Right. And there are times when I know what I'm doing and I'm happy to tell people, 
we shouldn't do this. We need to do this other thing instead. I've already stepped on that landmine once. I've lost the toes. Let's not all lose, you know, 10 more of them. So yeah, I think in times like that, I'm happy to jump up and say like, I know what's going on here, but a lot of times I don't. And so being able to admit that is the, the fastest way to grow. If you could have anyone as a mentor for one day, who would it be? And we ask that if you're religious, you pick someone from outside of your own religion oh. <laughs> or not someone within your own religion. Okay. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, I didn't even thought about that. I think, I guess I have kind of a contrarian answer here because I wouldn't pick anybody to be a mentor for a day. I think that's a, that's something that only comes with time and understanding. I mean, the, the couple of mentors that I can think of that have been the most meaningful are people that I've spent you know, hundreds of hours with. Right. And it took a long time into those relationships before that was really meaningful. Yeah. And so, you know, outside of some sort of supernatural figure that could have total understanding of who I am and give me an answer, that's sort of like having a genie though. I don't know if there's anybody in the world that would be able to just like have the answer for the problem that I have in my life. Right. Yeah. So we normally, our last question is normally, what is your fondest memory of Texas A&M? You are not a former student of Texas A&M. That's true. If you have a fond memory, you can share that or tell us your fondest memory at Baylor. The one memory that always comes to mind of Texas A&M was when I visited with a friend in high school and we were looking at, you know, universities and we, neither of us ended up attending, but, um, actually we both went to Baylor, but, uh, we were on a college tour and there was, you know, an undergraduate student that was telling us all about the history and the traditions and all the different, you know, really incredible parts of, of life at Texas A&M. And I don't remember the specific details of this, but they said there's a tree and you never walk under that tree. I don't know if it was if you were engaged or if unless you were graduating or something like that is one of these like you just don't do it. Right. And it was, or I think it was like, you never walk under it alone. Like no one ever walks under this tree alone. And so she kind of finished telling that and was like, turn look at this other building. And my friend and I like both glanced over at the tree and there's just this student, the A&M student, you know, wearing the t-shirt, everything just walks right under the tree, like 10 seconds after they said that. And my buddy just turns to me and he goes, well, that person's toast. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh man, you know, you gotta be really on your game if you come to Texas A&M, because if you walk <laughs> under the wrong tree, I mean, that's, that's the end of it right there. But no, I mean, that's, that's kind of awesome. the, that's my, that's my Aggie stereotype is just the, the amount of like things you have to keep in your mind as you're kind of navigating this campus or it's very true. Yeah. It's, Don't walk on this grass. You can walk on that grass. I mean, it's, it's tough. It's a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I never think about grass as much as I do when I'm at A&M, but you know, I don't want to offend anybody. So I, I <laughs> sure. just stay on the paths at all times. Sure. No, but at Baylor, you know, too many memories to think of. It was a great sure. place to be. I, I had a lot of fun. I went to a lot of football games and uh, cheered on the team, ran on the field as a freshman. And that's cool. Yeah. You know, spent a lot of times in libraries and late nights and study sessions and running to IHOP and everything. Met else. your wife. Met my wife. It's good Made stuff. a lot of friends for life. And yeah, I mean, there's there's just nothing that compares to that time in college for, in, for a lot of things. Wherever you go. Wherever you go. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to some seventh graders today about going to college. And one of I said, what is the thing that you're most looking forward to about college? And you know, they, they mentioned a few things. And one kid raises his hand and goes, parties. <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay. So, you know, <laughs> no, but I did, I did say participate safely. But I said, you know, you don't have another time in your life that's like undergrad and you should enjoy it. Work really hard yeah. so that you can have a lot of fun and meet as many people as possible yeah. because you just don't have another time in your life. Even, you know, Waco is similar to College Station and that's a fairly small town. I just think, I remember thinking right before graduation, I will never live within a 
three mile radius of all of my best friends ever again. Yeah. Right. right for sure. Yeah. No, it's very different. I mean, I think, you know, the, the one pushback I have there is like a lot of that stuff is true in startup companies, right? That's you, interesting. Yeah. When you're spending, you know, an inordinate amount of time in this one building with all these people working on this problem, you get really close to each other. You end up partying like you're an undergrad. I mean, it's, it's kind of an insane environment in many ways. But it's a lot of fun. It's it's kind of a different thing. And, uh, you know, you, you build a network of, of great people that I'd have to say, I think since transitioning into the kind of startup world, I've built a, a group of friends that are just as good as the group that I had in undergrad. Yeah. And uh, I feel really fortunate to have been able to do that. I'm sure you can do other places, but the path that I've found has been really rewarding there. Yeah. And it sounds like it's just a unique environment. But yeah, I think it can be. That. Right. Yeah. If you find the right spot, it sure. really is. Sure. Yeah. We end each session with what we call at A&M Good Bull. So it's just another word you have yep. to learn. Uh, yeah. But this is an opportunity to recognize someone else for something great they have done. Do you have someone else you'd like to send a good bull to? Oh, I have to send it to my wife. I mean, okay. she has been the most instrumental part of the success. The limited success I've had would never have happened without my wife. I mean, she's supportive. She's understanding. She goes through you know, the second order highs and lows that I'm subjected to. And I know it's not easier on her. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think especially in this past year, she's been a huge part of, uh, of everything that's been good about my life. So good bull to Lisa. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was great to meet you today and to get to pick your brain for a little bit. Of course. Anytime. Thanks so much. It was, uh, it was quite a pleasure. Maze Innovation Research Center is dedicated to understanding the true nature of innovation and how it benefits society. The center engages researchers across the college to examine how innovation advances human potential, productivity, and opportunity. The goal is to discover the best preconditions for innovation and identify how innovation spreads through society. The center is actively engaged with cutting-edge research taking place on A&M's campus, including a project to advance autonomous vehicles through the Unmanned Systems Lab in the College of Engineering. You can find out more about the Mays Innovation Research Center at mays.tamu.edu slash innovation dash research dash center. That is M-A-Y-S dot T-A-M-U dot E-D-U slash innovation dash research dash center. Thank you.